Well, if you are in the notes on page 11, we're going to see how the gospel was preached and explained from Adam until just before Abraham, from Adam and before the time of Abraham. There is a, a paragraph here that says, There is evidence of the gospel proclaimed and believed even before the time of Abraham. Even before the time of Abraham. We will look at several verses within the book of Genesis and some uh, uh, correlations throughout the Bible on what these verses mean and say. The first example comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Adam and Eve have partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've transgressed the commandment of God. And now God comes to confront them. He comes to confront them. In verse 8 it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The text says that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. If God was walking in the garden, then who was it? Was it the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Who was the one who actually interrogated, confronted, and announced the condemnation upon Adam, Eve, and the serpent? Who did that? It says the Lord God, but which person of the Trinity? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? John chapter 1 gives us the answer. John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No man has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. Which person is he talking about? He's talking about the Father. Nobody has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten God, or the KJV, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, the Son, has explained Him, the Father. The Son explains the Father. The Son reveals the Father. The, the Son delivers the Father's word to us. This is what the verse teaches. There are several similar verses like this in the Bible. Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. For example, John 14, 9. When one sees Christ, one sees the Father. That is, one sees the Father's will, one sees the Father's attributes. He doesn't see the Father literally because that is impossible, but he does see a manifestation of the virtues and the attributes, the character of the Father, and that is in the Son. So if it says, no man has seen God at any time, it could not be meaning no one has seen the Son, the Son of God, God the Son, at any time, because we do know He became flesh and dwelt among us. So, in the time of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3.8, it was the Lord Jesus who actually interrogated and confronted and announced the punishment upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. Another verse is verse 15, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we have a punishment upon the serpent, that is Satan. I will put enmity, strife, conflict, between you and the woman. 
that is between you and Eve. In what way will this conflict manifest itself? It says, and between your seed and her seed. Your seed. In this case, the text does not say whether it is seed in the singular sense or seed in the plural sense. But we can gather that the demons follow Satan and we gather that people follow Satan until they are converted. John 8:44, Jesus said of his opponents, the unbelievers, you are of your father, the devil. And in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle says, whoever practices sin is of the devil, is a child of the devil. So, in this case, we have enmity between Satan and all of his followers. And then we have a conflict between Satan and his followers against the seed of the woman. But here, who is the seed of the woman? Notice in verse 15, it mentions her seed, her descendant in the singular, in singular expression. Notice, he, he, that's a singular term. It doesn't say they, but it says he shall bruise you on the head or crush you on the head. That is, Christ will crush, crush the head of the serpent. He will put a final blow, a death blow on the serpent. He will not be victorious. He will not harm forever. But Christ eventually will punish the devil and that will be perpetual and eternal. Crushing the head. And then you is a reference to the serpent or Satan. You shall bruise or crush him on the heel. The, uh, Satan did bruise Christ on the heel and this crushing or bruising on the heel is not a permanent, and uh, a permanent and everlasting kind of crushing because it's on the heel. When one is crushed on the heel, one recovers from that. One can recover from a bruise on the heel, but not necessarily on the head. And in this case, the temporary crushing or bruising of Christ was on the cross. He did so. Then... We may ask the question, do we have evidence that this verse was taken this way in other places of the Bible? Yes. One example is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4, 4. When that phrase is there, born of a woman... So what's so important about being born of a woman? We're all born of a woman. But we are, in that case, in reference to Christ, coming into the world at the right time, it re refers to this promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would be a descendant or seed of the woman. This is why Paul says that. And it is this singular seed that runs throughout the Old Testament. Whenever there is a reference to messianic prophecy or Christological prophecy, that is, Christ fulfilling all of these promises, it's usually in the singular in those contexts that the Bible means it. And it means it in the singular because it's dealing with one individual, one offspring of Eve, and then Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham, and then Judah, and then David, and so forth. Why is that so important? Because God promised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. Paul takes this logic 
and to its conclusion, logical conclusion in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What was promised to Adam is repeated to Abraham and to others, and he's making the point, since Abraham is the greatest model of faith in the Old Testament, when God promised it to Abraham, he promised a singular descendant of Abraham who would be Christ, who would die for sins, die for us. Next, we read in in Genesis 3, verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It says that the man, Adam, gave his wife a name, Eve. Eve means living, living. And why did he give her that name? Because she was the mother of all living. We can take this all living in two ways. We do know that literally she is the mother of all humans. She is the mother of all humans. No Neanderthals, cavemen, apemen, nothing like that. That's all false. Evolutionists believe that. They believe in myths and and fictions. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we all physically come from Adam and Eve. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one every nation of mankind to dwell on all the face of the earth. So we can mean it in that sense, but we can also mean it, the Bible means it, in the sense that she is the mother of all who have life, eternal life. All who are redeemed. Because the Bible is not simply about physical and material things, it is ultimately about spiritual, eternal things. So eternal life is here, right here in the book of Genesis. We know that the tree of life, mentioned in Genesis 2 verse 9, and also in chapter 3 verses 22 to 24, that this tree of life is a symbol not of mortal life, but of eternal life. This is what's repeated in Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and Revelation chapter 22, this tree of life is a symbol and illustration of eternal life. 3.21 says, After the fall, after they sinned, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Earlier, they they sewed fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. But in this case, God replaces the fig leaves with animal skin, garments of skin. God did not permit them to kill and consume animals. He did not permit them to do so. In Genesis 1, 29 and 30, he gave them permission to eat the fruits and the vegetables. Every green plant was given to them to eat. It's not until after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, 1 to 7, that God grants permission for mankind to eat the animals. So when God had these garments of skin for Adam and Eve, He did not kill those animals for the sake of consumption. He killed those animals for the sake of sacrifice. And if He did so for sacrifice, It would not be and could not be so that they might not experience death because he already 
pronounce the curse in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So these sacrifices have nothing to do with mortal life, they have to do with eternal life. And then, if they have to do with eternal life, how could anybody conclude that the death of an animal, the bloodshed of an animal, is sufficient to give a human eternal life? That's absurd. No death of an animal can give a human eternal life. How could that be? In fact, the Bible teaches that even another human cannot give uh, his life in death for another human for the eternal life of a fellow man. The animals can't do it because they don't possess the image of God. Genesis 1, 26-27 says that male and female of humans have the image of God. But the animals do not. So how can they pay for us? And then on the human side, Psalm 49, 7. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Verse 7, Psalm 49, 7, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. Who's going to pay for it? Not another sinful man can pay for our sins. Nobody can do that. Therefore, this death of the animal here in Genesis 3.21 has to be a symbol of and a representation of the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who will take away the sin of the world. It has to be. And to the extent that Adam and Eve and anybody else understood the true purpose of animal sacrifices, then they were true believers. They received eternal life. If they believed in the Christ to come, who would be the perfect, animal, perfect sacrifice in fulfillment of these animal sacrifices the death of Christ. That's the way that this was intended and believed and taught. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, verse 4. Cain and Abel are born. They are uh, old now, uh, old enough to offer sacrifices. And let's begin actually in Genesis 4, verse 2. 4, 2. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And we know in the subsequent verses that Cain murdered his brother Abel. Cain became angry and then he murdered his brother. So what do we know here? What do we learn here? Adam and Eve from Genesis 3.21 they learned sacrifices of animals from God. God is the best and the highest and supreme teacher. He taught them correctly. And then after he taught them Adam and Eve taught their sons. He ta they taught their sons 
about what to offer to God, because Abel knew what to do. Cain brought from the fruit of the ground, but Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. He knew what God commanded to be offered among the animals, the firstlings and their fat portions. And the text says, 4-4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. For Abel and for his offering. Not just the offering, and not just Abel, but for Abel and his offering. Why does it say it that way, for Abel and for his offering? We'll see from Hebrews 11 that Abel had faith and demonstrated his faith by his offering. But Cain did not have that faith. Notice verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. God did not regard the, the unbelief of Cain and the offering of Cain. Unbelief manifested itself in the kind of offering Cain brought. God had no regard for it. He did not look upon it. God had no favor with that. Hebrews 11 verse 4. Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith though he is dead he still speaks. It says by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel believed in the true purpose of those sacrifices. They were uh, an illustration and a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. That's why God accepted it, and Abel showed it by the content of the sacrifice. Hebrews 12, 24. We ought to look to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel. Whatever was experienced by Abel was insufficient and lacked the quality it needed. Christ's blood is what ultimately saves. That's what he's teaching in Hebrews 12, 24. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, verse 11. 1 John 3, 11 to 15. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What's the message that you have heard from the beginning? From the beginning, from the book of Genesis, what do we know? That we ought to love our brothers, love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to do that. The first example we have in Genesis 4 is that Abel did what was right, and Cain did what was, uh, Cain did what was wrong. And that's an illustration of one who truly loves God or one who does not love God. Abel truly loved God and Cain did not love God. 
Abel had love in him. Cain had hatred in him. That's the distinction that John says we ought to know from the very beginning that we ought to love one another. Then we have Jude 4. Jude 4 and 5. Jude verses 4 and 5. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Some people creep in. They creep into families. They creep into churches. These people creep in, but it's not beyond the purposes of God. Because it says, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons, and they show their ungodliness in two ways. By their morality and by their theology. Notice, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They turn grace into wicked uh, freedom. They call it Christian freedom. They want to live as they please. And they say God's grace covers it all. So they turn grace into wickedness or licentiousness. They have a license to do whatever they want, they say. That's the morality part. And then the theology part, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The only Master and Lord is Jesus Christ. He's called Master, He's called Lord, and Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Then what does Jude do? Then for the rest of his letter, he gives Old Testament examples and also contemporary examples. But Old Testament examples, he names cities, he names names. And he gives examples of people who did those two things. They turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and they denied the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Three Old Testament examples of men and their followers who practiced wickedness, they turned grace into licentiousness, and two, they denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes all the way back to Cain as the first example from Genesis chapter 4. Now another example in Genesis 4. We pick it up in verse 25. Genesis 4, 25. This verse will be similar to another one in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 4, 25. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. What is this? Why is it that Eve gives the name of her son Seth? Seth means appointed or set or placed. He placed or God appointed. God appointed Seth as a replacement for Abel. What's so important about Seth as a brother of Abel? What's so important about that? We do know from chapter 5, verse 4, it says that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters, so if he did, 
What's so important about Seth? Why are we told about him? We do know from Genesis 5 that the genealogy goes from Adam, Seth, Enosh, all the way to Noah at the end of Genesis 5. Why among the many descendants of Adam and Eve, and even in their immediate family, they had other sons and daughters, aside from the ones that are named, what's so important about Seth? Could it be that God told Adam and Eve that their specific son Seth would be the ancestor of Christ? And then Seth and Enosh and all the rest of them going up to Noah knew that they would be ancestors of Christ. Not any of their siblings, not any of their other predecessors, only them. They would be the precursors and the ancestors of Christ. Notice chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. God cursed the ground in Genesis 3, right? He cursed the ground. When is it and how is it possible that Noah could be the source of God reversing the curse on the ground? Did Noah himself do that? Is there any record in the book of Genesis that Noah himself turned the cursed earth into a heavenly paradise again? No, he didn't do that. He didn't reverse the curse. But he is the ancestor of the one who would reverse the curse. He's the ancestor, the forefather of the one who would do so. Not any of the other sons and daughters of Lamech. Not any of them. For it says in verse 30, Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. Not any of the other sons and daughters are going to be the forefathers of Christ. It's going to be Noah. Noah. And this is why Lamech says this, because Lamech knows. He knows and he believes in the promises of God and he taught his son Noah and then Noah also taught his sons and it transferred after the flood to their descendants. Another example. Genesis 4.26 Genesis 4.26 And to Seth, to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Then, or at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I've already just explained the importance of it going from Seth to Enosh all the way to Noah, at least here in these two chapters. So, the significance is right there in verse 26. Then, or at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? And what is this name that they are calling upon? What does it mean to call upon the Lord? And what is this name that they are calling upon? Let's see what the scripture says about it. We know that Abraham did the same. Genesis 12. Genesis 12 and verse 8. Genesis 12, 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham also calls upon the name of the Lord. 
we do know that Isaac did the same in Genesis 21:33. Abraham, Isaac, and others throughout the Old Testament called upon the name of the Lord. Now, let's turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. The prophet Joel, what does he say? Joel 2.32. 2.32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors, or remnant, whom the Lord calls. The remnant will be saved because the Lord calls them to that. And the means of that is going to be verse 32 at the beginning, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it says. So this is the result of calling upon the name of the Lord. Joel is echoing Genesis 4:26, and what that means to call upon the name of the Lord. If it's not self-evident from just reading Genesis 4.26, Joel makes it absolutely clear that calling upon the name of the Lord relates to one's salvation. Amen. And one is a remnant or a survivor when the Lord calls you to that salvation. Let's continue on this train of thought. Before we get to where these, all of these verses are put together, and what I mean is Genesis 4.26, Joel 2.32... And a few of the ones I will announce in just a minute. We'll see that all of these verses are combined in a chapter in the New Testament. Where the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear what I'm saying right here. Okay. The next one is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. Nor... Is it out of reach? It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. What is this word that Moses says is not beyond your grasp. It's right here. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. I've been preaching it to you. I've been explaining it to you. This word is very accessible. So you cannot say, God made it inaccessible to me so that I can't understand it, I can't hear it, I can't know about it, I can't believe in it. No, it's right here. It's right here in front of you. Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame. Who is this stone or what is this stone? And so that it says, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed or put to shame. Could the stone be a literal stone? 
No. Since when does God expect us to put faith in a literal stone? Since when does God expect us to put faith in a literal branch? No. It's all, all, always the significance of that stone, or the significance of that branch, or the significance of that animal sacrifice. What do all of these metaphors point to? Or to whom does it point? Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. The word is near you. He cites Deuteronomy chapter 30. 30, and says, Listen, you Romans, I'm explaining the gospel to you. Listen, this gospel in this word is what... I'm preaching to you, it's this word of faith which we are preaching, and I'm citing Moses to tell you, Moses preached it, now I'm preaching it. It's the same thing. Verse 9. He, now he tells us the content of this word of faith. The content. That, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What's the content? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Are we talking about salvation? Yes. And he says we must confess Jesus as Lord. Not a vague concept of God. Not in some unknown messianic figure, cloudy and dark figure, messianic figure like that. Not in any other religion, not in any other religious leader, nothing like that. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The confession is necessary because Second uh, Corinthians 4.13, I believed, therefore I spoke. So we must believe in our heart, verse 9, but we must also speak out and say, this is what I believe, this is what I confess. Believe and confess. This, he says, you shall be saved. Then he explains, 10, For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The two are inescapable. inescapable. They are bound together. They are wedded. They, that is, what the heart does and what the mouth does, belief and confession, righteousness and salvation, all of this is a package. You cannot have one without the other. Amen. He's saying, this is what Moses taught and this is what I'm teaching you now. Then he proves it. Furthermore, verse 11. For the scripture says, for the scripture says is a proof text. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Or will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him. Well, who's the him? It's Christ, Jesus as Lord. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. This is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. He's saying by this quotation, I'm not inventing anything. Nothing is novel here. Isaiah preached this. Isaiah said beforehand that you have to believe in him. So that you're not put to shame or disappointed. Then, 
somebody may object and say, no, 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 this, it was different for the Jews in the Old Testament than it is for the Gentiles in the New Testament. No. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. No distinction between Jew and Greek. Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, are saved in the same way. Saved by the same Lord. They also have, all of them have to call upon the same Lord to be saved. They have to call upon Him. Call upon His name. The, the New Testament and Old Testament are both abundantly clear that the means of salvation for Jews and Gentiles is the same. The exact same. Acts 20.21, 20, he says that he was going from house to house and preaching repentance toward God, both to Jew and Greek, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached, he's asserting, is the same gospel that Moses preached and Isaiah preached. And now verse 13. Romans 10, 13. The same as Joel preached. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There he quotes Joel 2, 32. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, what name are we talking about? From Genesis 4.26 and Joel 2.32, what is this name? In the name he identifies in verse 9, 9, Jesus as Lord. Believe in Jesus as Lord. If we believe in Jesus as Lord, we shall be saved. For whoever, Jew or Gentile, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right here, Paul goes deep into the Old Testament, taking from Genesis 4.26, Joel 2.32, Isaiah 28.16, Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. He excites Moses, Isaiah, and Joel to prove his point here that his gospel is not a new gospel. It's not a different gospel. It's the same gospel proclaimed in the Old Testament. Moses believed it and preached it. And Isaiah believed it and preached it. Joel believed it and preached it. Another example from Genesis. This will be our last one. Genesis 5.21. Genesis 5.21. Enoch. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him, took him up. He was not. He lived for 365 years. Twice it says in 22 and 24, he walked with God, which means he was a very godly man. And he was not, meaning he suddenly disappeared. He was there and then he was gone, just like Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. He was taken up suddenly out of the way, out of, out of earth, and, and in a whirlwind up to heaven. And just like even Jesus in his ascension, he suddenly in Acts chapter 1 was taken off the earth and he went up and disappeared into heaven. Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus, they all did the same. So 
Why would this happen to Enoch? It would happen because he was a godly man, so it wasn't only about morality and physical things, temporary things, it was about eternal things. And then he went up to God, he disappeared and went up to God, because it has to do with God and eternal life. God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, how could we imagine that things that relate to God and our walk with God, relationship with God, is only temporary and physical material? We can't. Enoch didn't. That's not what happened to him. He went to be with God. Miraculously. Now, this is all we have in the Old Testament about Enoch. I, I said earlier in the last message, I said that whatever is written in the Old Testament is not all that they knew and it's not all that they believed. We cannot assume that. And I also said that in the New Testament, whatever they wrote was not all that they knew and was not all that they believed. And the best example of that in the New Testament is John 21, 25, where it says that all the books that could be written would fill up the world or could not fill up the world because of the things that Jesus said and did. And, I'm, and I, I've just written to you a summary, a concise account in the book of John what Jesus said and did. Jude. To prove this, that this is an Old Testament example, that they knew more than what is written in the Old Testament, go to the book of Jude. Jude 14. To give an example of a righteous man in contrast to wicked men, Jude cites Enoch. Jude 14. About these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In verse 14, it calls Enoch there. It says he's from the seventh generation from Adam. If we go to Genesis 5, we can tell he is the seventh generation from Adam. So we're talking about that Enoch in the book of Genesis. Then it says he prophesied. Well, who prophesies but prophets? Right. Correct? Prophets prophesy. The noun and the verb. Prophets prophesy. So Enoch was not just a man and not just a godly man, though he was both. He was a prophet of God. He was a man of God in that sense. A prophet. That means that God revealed truth to him that he preached to the people as a prophet. Furthermore, what does Enoch the prophet say? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And then Jude makes it abundantly clear that these people are ungodly. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And they speak harsh things against God they, therefore, they deserve punishment. Okay? Now, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. What does this mean? Who is the Lord who comes? Well, according to Jude, verses, verse 4, 
And even verse 5, according to some English translations, like the English Standard Version of Jude verse 5, it mentions the Lord in my Bible, but in some translations, like the ESV, it says Jesus. Jesus is the one who delivered them out of Egypt. And in verse 4, he's already mentioned Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. To Jude, the Lord is the Lord Jesus. Therefore, when he says in verse 14, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Well, when will Jesus, the Lord, come with his many thousands of holy ones? In the last days, in his second coming. He's going to come again. If he's going to come again, and there will be a day of judgment, and he's going to be the Lord, who with his thousands of holy ones, that is thousands of angels, Matthew 24, 29 and following, Jesus says he's going to send forth his angels to the four winds and gather his elect from around the world. He's going to do that. Not only are the angels going to gather the elect, they're also going to gather all the wicked, the reprobate, and punish them. That's what he's saying. So if there is a second coming when he judges with the angels the many wicked people of the world and the demons, when he does that, then there must be a first coming. If Enoch preached the second coming, in what way does the second coming make sense unless there's a first coming? Right. Correct? If there's the number two, we, know, we have to know about the number one. The first coming, and so what happens in the first coming? Enoch would have preached that too. He's a prophet. He's a prophet. So if he preached the first coming, he would have inevitably preached the death and resurrection of Christ and repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So these are some of the early evidences of the gospel proclaimed before the time of Abraham. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.